Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. You heard the music, you heard the yeehaw, but you're not hearing Josh Shelton. And I don't know how to describe this, folks, but the man... He bailed on us. He bailed on us. He, he took, ran away. <laughs> he took such a bad beating in fishing this weekend that he didn't have the integrity, the pride, the backbone. Give me some more here, Nate. He didn't have the, well, we're on the air here. He didn't have the gall, the manhood, the guts. To stand up and, you know, to deal with this, the Baffin Bay beatdown part, too. And so he's not here. Well, he also got a terrible sunburn. He <laughs> He did. He did. He looks like a lobster. And he's claiming he's sick. So uh, I'm not buying it, but. Uh, sick at heart, maybe. <laughs> well, it is good to be back. Today is going to be a little bit of a different episode, mainly because, well, Josh is out. And Nate, where are we today? We were some, Well, we got Nate here. Uh, so if, every, so this, if this episode is terrible, we know who to blame. Ladies and gentlemen, yes. Ryan will be blaming me live on the air. <laughs> You can hear me snarking off to him. Uh, we are here at Wichita Falls Country Club today, Ryan. We are with the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, um, Wichita Falls Regional Meeting. This is their their homeland, their their cradle, where they came from. So every year they come out here to to meet and to to gather to celebrate their organization. And we're here to to talk to some of the people here. I just thought they're here to play golf. There's a meeting as well. No. <laughs> they're 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 not just here to play golf. They're here to do real serious important business. business they've got, will they've got this today. nice ballroom set up. Okay, and we have on Joe Dancy, who is not here. Yes, we recorded a previous just recorded got through with him recording an interview with him, and at the end we have on our interview with the folks at Baffin Bay. Now that was recorded on Friday night, so the fishing trip had not happened um, at the time of the recording. But again, our sponsor, of course, is Baffin Bay Rod and Gun. Can't encourage you enough if you want to go take a client fishing, family trip, family reunion. There was a big company. I was telling Nate, I don't want to say the name of the company because they might not want it. That was there. They, uh, I guess a corporate meeting. They'd come from the Midwest all the way down to Baffin Bay to go and catch some fish. Had a great time out there. Saturday, of course, Josh is, I don't know, he's distraught, heartbroken. I don't know. But um, he won't be able to tell his side of the story now because we won't be talking about this next week, sadly. Well, they are the Yeti Lodge in Texas. And, of course, that means that you get guaranteed sunburns there. <laughs> Which is why Josh is not joining us. Well, I don't know why we're not the Yeti podcast in Texas, Nate. Well, since, we since should we're picking be. on yeah, since we're picking on people. It's well, yeah, Yeti. If you're if you're out there, if you're listening to this, if you've got a sales representative or a marketing a marketing executive who listens to the Texas Oil and Gas podcast, we are always happy to take your money. We will take your money. That's right. Okay, so Nate, anything else before we get into our interviews? Because we won't wrap it up at the end. We just have interviews today. Josh will assuming his sunburn heals up we'll uh he'll be back next monday and feel free to find him on linkedin give him a hard time harass him uh for the three josh fans out there in the world you know your man let you down today i i, I thought about it this morning it was like when trump versus hillary won uh campaign the hillary supporters stayed out all night and she didn't even come out and address her supporters she made him wait till the next day that's kind of how josh is he doesn't show up he's got like three four fans out there that like him for those three or four people, I want to apologize. You can switch to Team Ryan now. Josh didn't even – he could have recorded a message. He's got his own microphone. Yeah. He could have pre-recorded something, sent it in to be sampled on the show. He didn't do that. Didn't email a written statement. I mean, I mean, technically, I guess we got a written statement about him being sick or something. But, uh, um, 
but beyond that, there's there's nothing. So I apologize on behalf of, or not on behalf of Josh. I don't, you know, he's you know, he's worthless, I guess. But I'm sorry to his fans. Now, if we have any Johnson and Johnson representatives <laughs> listening as well, we are always happy to take ibuprofen and a sponsorship to to buoy up Josh's spirits and keep him on the air. He needs a sunblock sponsor for next month. Coppertone, Coppertone. <laughs> if you've got any representatives listening today, please uh, please get in touch with me. My number is two zero six seven one eight 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 five. Feel free to call Nate at all hours of the day and night. And without further ado, we will get to our interviews. Be sure to thank our sponsors at Bath and Big Rod and Gun. Let them know we sent you. We will not wrap the show. We'll just end it with our interview with them. So thank you guys, and we'll be back next week with a normal scheduled program. Okay, well, up next we have on a guest who's been on several times now, a professor at SMU, the one and only Joe Dancy. Joe, we were talking here to Carr Ingham um, at the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers event that we're at today, and he was saying how he wished that you were here to get to talk and to share your knowledge. So we're at least thankful that we have you on the show today. How are you doing, sir? Really good. Actually, I, yeah, I had to get up at 5 in the morning to drive up here to the University of Oklahoma in Norman. It's, this is the last week for classes. And so I tell you what, Brian, I don't know who's happier, the students <laughs> or me. It's, uh, it's time for the summer, man. We're, we're, I, I need a pool and a beer to sit by. So, You know, it's funny you say that. I saw you posted um, a picture on your LinkedIn, which people need to check out. Joe Post has a great LinkedIn. We'll link to that in the show notes of a, of a whale that's been flaring. I think you said like three years, and you see it driving back and forth every day to, uh, to Norman. Everybody, if you go up I-35, it's about 12 miles north of the uh, Texas border, and it's right before the, the t- truck wearing. And if you drive at night, it is a huge flare, and it's just a, incredible. You can't miss it. And my question was, and actually it's been more like uh, three months or three weeks. I mean, it's been every you know right. Christmas, every time I go by at night, it's just, it looks like there's a huge fire, and you look got to look over there. And my question on LinkedIn to some of the petroleum engineers was, now, how long do you flare a well? I know at the Barnett Shale, back in the day when they were drilling a bunch of wells there, it seemed like most of them you know, flared for three or four days, and then they shut them in. Um, I don't know why they flare this one, whether it's a different formation, obviously. Um, I assume there's pipelines in the area, because Oklahoma's you know, really pipeline rich, which is exciting. Uh, but I figured it must have been something with the formation, or they screwed it up during right. the combustion. And I, I haven't. I don't know the answer yet, and hopefully someone will post on LinkedIn and tell me <laughs> their theory. So, okay. Well, you always have your finger on the pulse of the industry. It's been a little while since we've had you on, so we're getting close to the end of April as we record this. Um, where are we at in the industry, and what might you expect as we go to this? You know, into the second quarter and through the rest of 2019. Well, I, I tell you what, Ryan. We had about two or three weeks ago. We had uh, six experts come into my class. Uh, we bring our online students in and we had them come in and talk about the industry. And I tell you what, it is interesting just to hear their take on things. Obviously, the Permian Basin is still seems to be the focus of everybody, uh, especially the Wall Street types and, and the venture capital folks. Although they tell me, and I've heard this from a number of folks, the economics and the scoop and stack work just about as well, if not better, than the Permian. But everybody's going to the Permian. That's where you want to make the deals. That's where the, the values are going through the roof. I've had calls from, oh, the Wall Street Journal on some, some of the properties out there, and they're trying to figure out you know, what certain areas are worth. Uh, and you, if you take the numbers from 10 years ago and the numbers today for minerals and leases, I mean, they're, it's just an incredible more wealth has been generated in the Permian Basin in the last 10 years 
than in the entire history of Oklahoma and Texas, just because because we you know we the minerals were not developable ten years ago. Now with the with the horizontal drilling, the fracking, and everything else. And the people don't realize this. Even you go back to Pennsylvania, and I saw a posting on, actually it was on my LinkedIn page. Uh, uh, I, I did a post this weekend, and someone said, you know, he, they work in Pennsylvania, and said, you know, some woman came up to him and said, you know, I have an 80-acre farm, and I'm getting, you know, $300,000 every three months from gas production. And he goes, those people need to tell their story, you know, more so right. and more often than, you know, the the anti-fracking, leave it in the ground, you know, uh, anti-hydrocarbon folks, you need to realize how much wealth is being created. But that being said, my experts that came in, they were real positive on uh, the Permian going forward. They think the big problem, getting oil and gas out of the Permian is just about fixed. Those folks have been building pipeline capacity out for, you know, the last uh, 12 months. And as such, they're about ready to get it pretty well hooked up. And when that happens, and it's going to be happening really quickly, they tell me, um, you're going to see a massive number of, of completion attempts where they go in, they drill these wells. They got a bunch of drilled and uncompleted you know, duck wells and everybody, they're just waiting. You don't want to complete a well. You know, you don't want to spend a few million bucks completing a well if you're not going to put it online because you're just wasting, you know, you got a time value of money. So as soon as as soon as that pipeline opens up, you're gonna see if you want a job. And I told my law students this, and they don't they don't appreciate the opportunity. But I said, hey, you know, instead of practicing law, you could probably go out to Midland for the next year or two and work on a completion crew, and they'll train you and make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. But you're gonna have to work. You have to work. It's gonna be hot. It's gonna be dirty. It's gonna be smelly. But when you come back and you start practicing law, you're gonna know a hell lot more about the oil industry. And, and business than you know, anybody could ever teach you sitting in a classroom. And, but I have been told it'll be July or um, July or August. And the speculation is if you're a producer out there and you have a drilled and uncompleted well and you call up a completion company and say, hey, you know, I, wanna, I want my wells completed, you're going you're, you're gonna to have problems getting crews, you're going to have problems getting equipment. And uh, It'll be a, a broom time out there. And as well as the interesting thing is the prices still go up for the leases. Their, their lease prices are going up, deals, they're making them left and right. And of course, you just saw the, the recent uh, acquisition, the multi-billion dollar acquisition that was made out there. So the big speculation is you know, going forward, we're going to see a lot more takeover activity in the Permian Basin than we have in the last year and a half. And I I've heard that for so long, Ryan. I don't know. I hope it's true because I know there's a lot of undervalued companies out there. I'm not going to name any names, but you, all you do is you look at the speculative articles, and I think Jim Cramer, which you know, Lord knows if he knows what he's talking about. But I mean, he on his show he was you know rattling off certain you know companies he thinks are primary you know takeover candidates out there. A number of them, and I will say this: a number of them have been big supporters of these companies of University of Oklahoma and Southern Methodist University. So on one hand, it'd be nice to see the shareholders monetize. On the other hand, you know, these folks have been hiring our students left and right. And if they get taken over by, you know, a large firm, I, I, I would hope that would continue, but we'll see. 
anyway, that was that was the take on things. The other big thing that uh, a lot of people talked about out there was not only completion crews, but the question of where the hell are you going to get the water? When yeah. you look at the amount of water that's be that's needed, and you know, you know, Western Texas and Western Oklahoma, they're essentially a desert. You know, and how are you, how are you going to frack all those wells that are sitting out there with the amount of water we have? And that's a, there's a huge question of whether we're going to have enough water. You can't use some of the produced water because it's too salty. You either have to dilute it or fix it. Um, fix it being desalinize it, which is expensive. Um, so that's another huge issue is you know, where are you going to get the water? And moving the water to the well site to frack is another issue because you don't in West Texas and Western Oklahoma, you don't want to dig a ditch to put a pipeline in because you're gonna you'll have a scar there for the next 200 years. So what they're doing, they're using uh, uh, temporary pipe that they lay on top of the ground and they they'll move it around to to where it's needed, which is sort of interesting. Although the counties have been a little bit not real pleased because a lot of times you have to take that and you have to go under the county roads and you have to take it alongside the county roads and you have any spills, you have environmental issues. To date, I have not heard of, you know, the environmentally, the moving the water has been pretty friendly, but it's, uh, it is environmentally friendly, but it, it'll be curious seeing going forward, you know, do we have the crews, do we have the water? And once we get the oil out though, it's, uh, it's exciting. I mean, they'll, they'll get it uh, moved down to the Gulf Coast to get exported. And the other exciting thing, I guess this is a, a speaker in my class, um, was talking about natural gas liquids. So even the natural gas that uh, you have problems marketing, and some of the people in the Permian are paying folks to get rid of their gas because they can't flare. Um, they said, you take that gas and you process it, and with natural gas liquids, the amount of liquids is gone through the roof. The amount of exports has gone through the roof. Everybody and their dog down in the, down in the Gulf Coast is expanding their chemical plant or refiner to take more natural gas liquids and the exports have, have gone of ethane and ethylene or propylene. I can't remember all the products, but they're just the liquids. It's a boom down, a boom down, a boom time. And uh, going forward, I think we're going to see oil prices a little more firm. Natural gas I'm bearish on and have been the last few years. It's not going down, but it's not going any. We have it's too much gas. We have too much technical capability. The um, Marcellus, Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia. I mean, there's a Saudi Arabia natural gas, and you know, as they build that out, you know, we'll maybe three or four years from now, things will look a little bit. Um, but for oil and for natural gas liquids, I mean, I'm pretty positive, and I'm pretty positive you're going to see after the recent deal that was done. Um, you're going to see some activity, more merger activity and more um, large-scale merger activities of some public companies, which should be exciting. I'm heavily invested in the energy sector and have been. I was a little bit premature, but I, I looking forward, and I guess on top of that, and then we mentioned, you called me about a half hour ago, and we just talked a little bit about maybe some stuff to talk about. Uh, one of the big things too is, um, you know, with the sanctions on Iran and you know the global oil market, it's a lot tighter than a lot of folks think. And I got a feeling oil prices are up nicely today. I think we're you put a sixty-five dollar um, West Texas Intermediate crude price 
and 250 MCF gas, and your 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 properties are going to be worth your properties are going to be your cash flow is going to look a lot better than it did at 50. So so exciting times, Ryan. You know, you mentioned a few minutes ago about um, when you see the big companies come in and uh, buy out a smaller company. There is a kind of fear that you might have job loss. I was talking to some listeners this weekend, and one of them theorized that if the large companies like um, Chevron or Exxon or Shell come in to uh, start to grab large portions of the permian acreage, they still will need a JV with smaller companies just to be able to get to, 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 to drill as many wells as they want to need. They won't be able to drill it with their current program. What are your thoughts on that? Do you expect to see if we continue this merger and acquisition quen, uh, trend like you did with Chevron and Adarco, will you expect to see um, JVs uh, with smaller producers to help them keep their drilling program on pace? Yeah, good question. Of course, smaller, the neat thing about these majors, they have the capital. I mean, this is such an expensive capital intensive business that uh, the majors can drill. You know, they have the capital, but they may, might not have the rigs. They might not have the personnel, although they can always hire them. I mean, that's the exciting thing about working for a major. The the exciting thing about working for a smaller company is especially if you have stock options or if you're a equity owner in a small company that gets taken over by, you know, Exxon or Chevron or whoever, you know, you your you know net worth can go through the roof overnight. And it's a I gave a presentation to some of my SMU students, who's the SMU Energy Club uh, last week, and you know, told them how many. I mean, we got a number of billionaires that have been you know are walking around that went through SMU Business School, went through SMU Law School, and on top of that, we have you know dozens and dozens of millionaires who, you know, if you stick in the business thirty or forty years and you have an equity interest, then whether it's a ENP company, whether it's a midstream company, you know, whether you're in the natural gas liquids, you know, you, you could not have helped to have a pretty good chance of doing pretty well over the last, uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. And it's, uh, it's exciting to see. And a lot of those folks don't, you know, don't realize the potential until you point it out to them and you point out the other interesting thing. And I did not expressly bring this up, but I, I have in the past is the fact that um, oil and gas is so technologically oriented that, you know, if you're a, you don't even have to be an oil and gas person. If you could be a techie and if you, you know, you like the, you know, patents and patent law and protecting intellectual property, oil and gas has plenty of that. And I will tell you, um, I talked to the Dean of, um, of the uh, OU Mooburn Earth and Energy uh, program uh, about a month ago. And he told me, he goes, Joe, he goes, one of the things I, as a dean that I want to do is I want to start harvesting royalties on some of the technological advances that some of our professors are putting out there. And he goes, we really have not paid attention. And he goes, we'll go out. And he goes, you know, they'll consult for $5,000. And he goes, give away technology that's worth like half a million. And he goes, we need to be licensing that at OU. And or, you know, SMU doesn't have a petroleum engineering department. But uh, the technology, regardless, whether you're dealing with seismic, whether you're dealing with fracking, whether you're, because all the continual development of technology, which is exciting. So yeah, much better. And all you need is, you know, a, a couple, a couple good patents. And again, you, you can, if you're a small company, you have the patents and Chevron wants them, you know, you, you're sort of sitting in a, pretty good place where they'll either buy the company or they'll you know buy the patent or they'll 
you know, license the patent. Uh, and I know, you know, this is, it's sort of where the electricity was back when we had Edison and Westinghouse and Tesla, and they all had patents. And, you know, Edison had a patent on a light bulb, and then everybody tried to work their way around it. And they all, their patents all got them pretty well rich. Although, uh, in the end, you know, it, uh, unfortunately, the, because of the capital intensity and because of the, the panic of 1907, you know, and Tesla and Westinghouse and actually Edison, all of them lost a substantial amount of their fortune, but they still had the patents to, uh, you know, to uh, and actually build built some hellaciously successful businesses in the same way with with uh, oil and gas and, uh, and technology and the minerals. That's the exciting thing, Ryan, in the United States, we're one of the only countries that has minerals that are owned by the private parties. Otherwise, you're dealing with Mexican government and the Mexican government or any other government, you know, has different priorities and different different measures of risk than we have here in the United States. So um, it's exciting times. And I, I, that's why I'm glad to be part of the energy sector and working with some of these energy firms. Yeah, you mentioned the pipeline capacity getting online. Um, we talked about that on the show and the predictions were third to fourth quarter this year, but from what you're hearing, it might be a little sooner. Um, President Trump just announced last night um, that he's going to put uh, sanction theoretically anyone who does business with, with Iran. Um, it could be that we, if, if depending on what happens, if he's really serious about that, that you could see prices really high the second half of the year. Um, it's going to depend on how the Saudis respond. I know there's kind of some mixed messages from them, but we could see a really high price point the second half of the year. You couple that with the um, fixing of the problem with, this, with, the, with the bottleneck of the, of the pipeline, it could be really good for the Permian Basin as we go into this uh, third, fourth quarter this year. Yeah, I agree. I don't. I think the Saudis will play ball with us because we're we, we do too much over there to have them uh, mess with us. The the question is, what is their capacity? And I've heard from more people over the last ten years. You know, they say they have twelve million capacity to twelve million barrels per day capacity, and a lot of people tell me it's more like ten. Although, you know, you never know. You never know. You know, they might be able to short term get up to twelve million. But the uh, but for the Permian, uh, the and actually this is great news for the Bakken and you know companies like uh, Continental Resources that has a huge oil presence uh, in both the scoop and stack. It's great. It's great for the scoop and stack also here in Oklahoma because we're pretty oily in some areas and uh, as well as up. Although I, I got to admit, you know, the Colorado has an oil Brera, but the Colorado. I am very concerned about the political environment up there. And actually, I even, uh, you know, somebody called this morning and wanted a quote on what I was th thought of what's happening up there politically. And I said, you know, there's risk, there's political risk that is increasing in Colorado. You and I talked about this about six months ago, back mm -hmm. in November, when they voted on, they voted down the proposition, but it's a risk. If you have minerals or you have production up there, and all of a sudden, you know, they go hostile and really restrict production, you know, the value of your asset just got cut, you know, by 10, 20, 50%. And so it's easier to go to North Dakota where you, they know they love you up there. It's easier to go to Texas. They love you there. It's easier to go to Oklahoma. They love us. Or to go to Louisiana, um, New Mexico, New Mexico is another one I'm a little concerned about, but most of that's federal lands. And I, uh, I've talked to a number of people actually, interviewed the University of New Mexico was looking for an oil and gas professor and 
I think I came across as way, way too a pro industry. I think they wanted more of a environmental, you know, let's sort of keep it in the ground type of professor. I don't, I don't know. I, I, uh, it's a great school. I, I was honored to have been interviewed for the position, but it, uh, um, New Mexico is going gangbusters on increasing oil production and it's mainly federal, but they're just like Colorado. There's a number of political risks that have arisen. And I, if I had money and I do have money, um, my investment is almost all in Mason, and just because the economics work there in the scoop and stack. But as it turns out, um, I think the Permian is better recognized, and 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 I wouldn't I wouldn't hesitate to go to North Dakota either. The, uh, the North Dakota, the Balkan up there, Continental Resources, and I haven't looked at their numbers lately, but I you know it, it's been a month or two, but last I looked. They're a pretty stout company. They're right here in Oklahoma City. I like Harold Hamm, you know, regardless of what you think of him. It's, uh, he, he's, he's built one heck of a company. So, Okay, well, Professor Dancy, we are running out of time here. We got a late start because we had a miscommunication on uh, how to get it uh, set up. So apologies on our end for that. Thank you for working past the technical difficulties with this. Um, we mentioned SMU, LinkedIn. People need to connect with you because you post a lot of good content on LinkedIn. Anything else that you want to point people to uh, before we get you off here today? No, I just, like I say, I, I love to uh, interact with the people on LinkedIn because there's a lot of industry. I have 37,000 followers that, uh, and actually I learn more from them than they learn from me. I post the questions. It's like, hey, I'm just a professor. And these folks, Ryan, I mean, they're working on the wells. They're working in the fields. Right. They're actually doing the deals. And the stuff that I get, I mean, it's incredibly interesting uh, and informative. And it, it's great because I can walk into the classroom and, you know, talk to the students about it. And the students are like, where the hell do you get that? It's like, well, <laughs> let me tell you, I have these, these contacts out in Midland, Texas. And they'll, they'll, you know, I can ask these folks and they'll tell me, uh, uh, they'll tell me what the score is. So anyway, thanks for having me on today. Well, good deal, and we will have you on here in a few months, maybe when summertime, after you get a little vacation from all your uh, your school time work, get a little rest and get you down maybe maybe midsummer and see what's going on in the industry then. We are here with Car Ingham, Petro or Petroleum Economist for the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing fine. How about you? Doing very well. Great. Well, it's been a long time since we had you on. I think it's been seven, uh, eight days, yeah, eight days. A, a weekish. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming back on so soon. You bet. Of course, we had some breaking news. I guess it was last night. I was kind of uh, tired from our trip, but I think last night or yesterday, President Trump announced um, he's basically going to lay the hammer down, theoretically, if you help uh, the Iranians out in um, by sanctioning you. So that could have an impact on oil prices. Oh, I think in the near term it probably will. Um, in, the, in the immediate aftermath of that announcement, the expectation would be that that would push prices higher. That's what happened last fall when we were talking about the prospect of implementing and then enforcing Iranian sanctions. And then we implemented them and did not enforce them. So right. that kind of wreaked uh, some considerable havoc on prices in the fourth quarter of the year. And so we might expect the same now, uh, but just the, the market dynamics would suggest that this would have uh, upside impact on prices in the near term, just based on the announcement itself, based on the notion that that production is going to go um, be removed from the market pipeline. And then we'll see how it plays out in terms of the politics. 
Yeah, Trump has been vocal about wanting low oil prices, presumably for low gasoline prices. This seems to send a mixed message here with what he's doing because it's kind of hard to see, unless he can get the Saudis to really step up to the plate here, it's kind of hard to see how we can get gasoline prices back down by putting this kind of pressure on the Iranians. Appears to be walking a bit of a tightrope there. And, of course, he's done that all throughout his campaign and his presidency. He sung the praises of the domestic oil and gas energy and talked about uh, energy independence and then actually used that term energy dominance. Well, that only uh, happens if you've got prices at a certain level, whereas the oil and gas industry in the United States and Texas in particular is the key driver behind domestic uh, oil and gas production. Uh, if prices are favorable to increased activity. Mm -hmm. And so that means higher rather than lower, wherever you want to draw the line. Uh, uh, but certainly uh, that doesn't occur with an industry that is in contraction rather than expansion. So energy independence, energy dominance, however you want to phrase it and whatever that means to you, mostly what it means is that we continue to grow production in the United States and take up an ever greater share of the global market. Well, that's exactly what has happened. Uh, at the same time, uh, he has um, um, uh, professed a concern for the consumers uh, and the end-use prices they are paying for energy products, a gallon of gasoline in particular. Um, and so I suppose what I would suggest is we can manage both of those things. Gasoline prices, as we sit here today, let's just say 250 in the state of Texas, mm -hmm. well, at their worst. Back in the 2008 time frame, we were just under $4 a gallon. Right in the state of Texas, and so prices are not nearly that high now, and yet we have crude oil at record levels of production, as you well know. And so I think we can accomplish all of these things. And again, as an economist, as a market economist, I think these are market outcomes. And uh, the market uh, and the oil and gas industry, the players, the operators and producers just sort of have to take the politics in stride and take what's handed to them and try to make the most of it. So uh, two... <clears throat> Three weeks ago, the, the Trump administration was talking about um, mending defense with China, if you will. They were kind of wanting to get rid of the tariffs, walk all that back. Now we see that he's doubled down on Iran. Um, you know, there's there's a saying that Hitler lost World War II because he tried to fight too many wars at one time. He's fighting the Russians and he's fighting the Allies. Um, from an economist standpoint, I'm just curious, is it possible that, that the U.S. can balance tariffs here, threat of sanction there, or does it become a spot where we could lose, because Trump's obviously leveraging our, our, our vast economy, our vast spot in the world um, to leverage these other nations. Um, but is there a spot to where he could actually overextend the United States and um, not use that power that we currently have? Because he is threatening these people, putting sanctions over here, threatening sanctions there, restrictions there. Or is it so big and so vast that he has that kind of stroke? Well, isn't that an interesting question? I actually hadn't even thought of it in those uh, terms in terms of how many, uh, let's say, economic wars we're trying yeah, to fight at the same it, yeah. time. Um, uh, you know, most I say most. Actually, that's not true. Probably uh, a minority of economists would suggest that under any set of circumstances, the economy, domestically, internationally, the way we trade with other nations, um, uh, is too vast to manage anyway. In other words, whatever you're doing that you think is helpful to the United States in terms of trade policy is actually probably more damaging than it is helpful. In fact, I assure you that it is, and that case can be made. And economists have made that case about trade for 
virtually all of relatively modern economic history in which trade between nations and trade between individuals and companies within nations has taken place. And so I suppose there's probably something to be said for that, but you know, this is what, um, this is what presidents are elected to do to manage a host of things all at, uh, all, all at one time and to surround yourself with the people that can do that. Uh, to me, as an economist, the broader question is whether we ought to be doing any of this stuff anyway. Uh, uh, the Iranian situation is a different matter. Um, and to me, that has uh, the, the strong element of national security along with it and uh, what we are permitting and have permitted in recent history Iran to do in terms of developing its nuclear weapons program and understanding that, um, that uh, revenue from crude oil is a strong part of that. And so I don't take any issue at all with the president in terms of his stance on Iran. Um, in terms of trade with China and the, um, and the implementation of uh, tariffs in this trade war that we seem to be fighting with China and some other nations too, by the way, but China most notably, again, the case can fairly easily, easily be made that it is more damaging to the United States and it is helpful that whoever it is we are protecting that we can see in the United States, there are more people than that that are being harmed that we can't see. Right. And so that's the case that needs to be made. And people like me spend a lot of time trying to make that case. And it's just a, an uphill battle to fight because it seems intuitive, you know, that they're doing something that is harmful to some businesses, some exporters and some manufacturers and some companies within the United States. But to the broader consumer economy, Actually, what they're doing is very helpful, uh, and consumers make that point every hour, every minute of every hour of every day when they elect to buy something that costs less than something else. If you wanted to do it, you could very easily support the United States by purchasing the more, more expensive, expensive yeah. domestic product. Right. And yeah, you don't do it, I don't do it, nobody does it. Right. And so, uh, who is it that we're harming here? Well, it's... Uh, and a part of this uh, depends on your interpretation, your notion of what an economy exists to do. Is it an economy that exists to simply employ people? No, actually it isn't. Um, it's an economy that exists to provide consumers with what they want and need when they want and need it at the lowest possible price they can get it. In other words, the greatest value that can be provided to them. Right. Yeah, I had a discussion with someone um, back when Trump was running and he was – um, talking about the idea of he was going to bring jobs back, manufacturing jobs. And I, I remember pointing out that same thing. I said, well, why don't you buy Made in America products as it is right now? Because we, we don't want to pay the extra money. It just costs more. And so there's, there's something to be said of the theoretical idea. There's also something said on, um, on the fact that the, the, the jobs, and there's obviously some labor issues we can get into. We don't have to. But there's something to be said about those, those folks that you are providing a good, a good service by having those jobs um, in these remote areas where they couldn't get labor any other way. Um, they couldn't provide for themselves. And so having um, the uh, the shirt factories or whatever it is, the, the cell phone manufacturers, is, is actually a good thing for those um, places in China or India or wherever you're making the products at, I, I would argue at least. With, well, some health, with, with some health concerns, obviously, for how they're working them. Sure, but uh, uh, again, that, that's not um, that's a concern that we can have, but it's a situation we can virtually do nothing about. Right. Um, uh in, in bigger terms, in terms of the just the Chinese economy, 
uh, even today, I mean, if you just take the Chinese economy and the U.S. economy in terms of the sheer dollar size of each one, well, you know, they are they're a sizable economy, obviously, mm-hmm. but mostly it's because their population is what quadruplies or whatever the right. whatever the number is on a per capita basis, which is the only measurement that makes sense. Per capita GDP in China is dramatically below um, uh, per capita GDP in the United States. In other words, mm-hmm. we are just much more greatly developed and mm-hmm. mature as an economy than they are. And by the, re- by the way, that's the reason that it's easier for them to go through these periods of 10, 12% economic growth when you're going from just coming off the mat yeah. developmentally uh, to being a mature and developed economy, our 3% appears to pale in comparison to their 10 or 12%. But in fact, they're just playing catch up and they're way behind. And so under what set of circumstances is it that do we not want our global neighbors to be much more developed um, and, uh, and economically wealthy than they are? Uh, for us to w- ultimately wish that China, for example, remains a smaller economy than the United States, uh, is to wish exactly that, that their people simply do not enjoy um, uh, a higher economic standard of living, that they don't economically develop. And by the way, this is actually beneficial to us because a growing and developing economy demands um, more resources that we might be able to provide. Energy is at the top of that list. Right. And so when we start messing with these things, we don't ultimately have any idea what we're truly messing with. And again, my suggestion would be that no one person, not the president, not anybody who works with him, not one body within government, is smart enough, knows enough uh, to manage an economy the size of the U.S. and its global interactions and the nature of interdependence among economic players locally, nationally, uh, and internationally. It just can't be done. And again, when you try to do it, you're ultimately doing more harm than good. It's the law of unintended consequences, ultimately. It's every bit of that. Um, uh, One of my favorite economists, the great... uh, uh, F.A. Hayek, Friedrich mm-hmm. uh, uh, Hayek, uh, referred to this as a knowledge problem, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say you don't have it. You right. simply don't have the knowledge, and you can't acquire it. You can't obtain it. Right. You don't have the knowledge. Um, and uh, once you come to grips with the fact that you don't have the knowledge, then uh, uh, your tendency, hopeful tendency, uh, you know, uh, if you're me, is to just leave things alone and let the markets play out because they've always delivered for us over time and I believe they'll continue to do so in the future. How many things have we just fouled up by government jumping in the middle of them uh, uh, to solve a problem and they may solve a problem for a few and they create a host of problems for somebody else and healthcare is a principal example of that but it's not the only one. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we're here with the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers in case people did miss our last week's episode they're just tuning in this week. Who is the group? What are you guys here doing? Nate said you're here for business, but it looks to me like you're playing golf. So Let business, uh, One man's business is another man's something else. <laughs> and so uh, business looks like a lot of different things to people on uh, on one day to the next. Somebody Te- has to establish dominance, <laughs> Ryan. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I don't know how you think this gets done, but sometimes <laughs> it's on T-box number yeah, 12. that is true. Um, the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers is a statewide organization, trade association of uh, uh, upstream companies, which is the exploration and production into the oil and gas business. So our membership primarily, our core membership, are oil and gas operators and producers and drilling companies and service companies. And then, of course, we've got 
um, numbers of other members that are uh, affiliated with the industry that service them in one way or another. They are providers of goods and services to the industry. They're accountants, they're bankers, they're lawyers, insurance agents, and others that are just very directly connected to the industry. And so our membership is just kind of all banded together uh, and paid their dues to uh, our uh, association under the hope that we uh, continue to represent the oil and gas industry in the state of Texas and in D.C., by the way, uh, to maintain a healthy, uh, vibrant industry that grows and uh, churns out product and employs people and contributes to local and state economies and all of those things. And again, um, I don't for a second suggest that that's the reason the industry ought to exist. The industry ought to exist to do exactly what it has been doing, and that is providing an extraordinary amount of product to the consumer marketplace. And so we stand in the gap for the industry, and primarily our segment of that industry are what we'd refer to as independent oil and gas producers. Right. Well, that can be uh, that can be a wide swath of companies, but if you start with the huge companies, the publicly traded major integrated companies, ExxonMobil and Shell and BP and some of those, uh, we, we have membership representation from a good many of those companies, but uh, our companies are, uh, our core companies are companies that you've never heard of, but they are great oil and gas operators. A few of them might be publicly traded. Most of them aren't. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just corporations or family businesses or whatever the case may be. And so when Wichita Falls, the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers actually came into being in the year 2000 when the North Texas Oil and Gas Association, which was in Wichita Falls, and the West Central Texas Oil and Gas Association, which was in Abilene, merged and then went statewide. So right here in the North Texas, West Central Texas area, we've still got a great core membership. Our chairman from, uh, chairman once removed is a guy named Bob Osborne with a company called Cobra Oil and Gas in Wichita Falls. That company will be here tonight. He will sort of be serving as our, um, our, our host, uh, the Alliance host for this event. Cobra Oil and Gas, uh, again, this is a company that probably not most people in the state of Texas ever heard from, but they have an incredible, wonderful story. Right. And this is a company that, is, that I just picture when I think about the implementation of policies that would cause harm to the domestic oil and gas business um, and kind of uh, have the impact of putting economic pressure, possibly even to the extent of having some of these companies go out of business, uh, in favor of the ExxonMobil's of the world. And while we believe there's room for all of those, right. and the government policies just need to essentially stay out of the way and let these companies slug it out in the marketplace. So a company like Cobra and a lot of our membership, they find places to operate where uh, you total up all of their production and it's a sizable amount. Cobra was pretty active in the Permian and then sold out to uh, some other interests uh, not so long ago, but they've got production in a lot of places and just their story about how mm -hmm. they found this production in some of these out-of-the-way places and just turned them into fantastic um, uh, uh, areas of oil and gas production. And they're just one company among all of ours. Our membership totals about 2,900 companies and individuals. Uh, and that's, um, I think that's easily the largest statewide yeah. oil and gas trade association. Uh, so our desire is to get bigger, to grow the industry in Texas. But this is an appreciation day for our core group in North Texas and West Central Texas. Thank you for 
uh, being the original part of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers. And uh, our annual meeting had always been in Wichita Falls until 2019. And as you know, we moved mm -hmm. it to Irving. Uh, but we would not for a second want anybody in, in the Wichita Falls in North Texas and West Central Texas in this part of the world to think that we've forgotten about them because uh, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah. You know, you said that the oil and gas industry does a lot of things. And one of the things I always say is it saves lives. And I always say that, you know, when you need a heart transplant or um, and that chopper is flying from hospital A to hospital B, stop, look at that chopper. And tell me what doesn't come from oil and gas. The, well, the heart doesn't. <laughs> but right. just about everything else involved you, in the process you got it. comes with oil and gas. Not just not just the fuel, all the plastics, all the metals being ored and stuff like that. So we have a lot of good, we, we, we do a lot of good things. We save lives. And people don't even really um, um, put that into the scope of things oh, that we people do. People have, uh, have tried over time to try kind of quantify what your daily life would look like without oil and gas and all the number of things, which is virtually everything, everything. by the way, yeah, that you everything. would just be without. We've said uh, Amish living is about the closest we could come up with. You know, it's probably uh, pretty uh, close. An Amish lifestyle, something along um, that. Horse manure and scoop shovels, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, without oil and gas, what would you be doing for a living? Yeah. Horse I would manure be, and scoop I would shovels. Be, that's exactly right. <laughs> we wouldn't have that's the Texas exactly Oil right. Gas podcast, <laughs> and you wouldn't be a Patrolman Congress. You got that right. <laughs> I don't you know what we would be right. doing. The industry has done, uh, you know, a, a not great job always of suggesting what the economic benefits of the existence yeah. of the industry are. And they've always wanted to, and I get this, lots of industries want to do it, talk about how many jobs they create, what mm. the payrolls are, and what the positive economic impact is. I always thought this was the flaw in the logic and supported the Keystone XL pipeline, for example. Mm. Look how many construction jobs we're going to create here. Right. Well, fine, you know, but if you just want to create construction jobs, you can decide to build a pipeline from over there to way over there that has no absolutely no benefit no, yeah, whatsoever. No long-term benefit behind um, it. Uh, the reason that thing needs to exist is because companies who want to plunk huge private investment dollars into it have already determined that there's a market need for this. Well, this is the same with just the oil and gas business. That's right. We do create a lot of jobs, and they are high-paying jobs, and the economic impact is high. But mm -hmm. so what? Mm -hmm. Um, if we weren't creating a product or bringing to the product, uh, to the surface of the earth, a product that had economic benefit, uh, there's no point in doing this. Right. And so the economy does demand this uh, domestically and globally. And we know this is true because of the movement in prices in the last 15 or 20 years. And so the market has clearly signaled to the domestic oil and gas business, hey, you bring me as much of this stuff as you can and I've got a spot for it. Um, and what is that spot? Well, my goodness, it's everything. It's transportation. It's plastics. It's uh, right. it's er virtually every good or service that you can imagine. Yeah. The cell phone you hold in your hand, uh, the way you got to work, the um, the 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 uh, goods that you're able to provide, that you're able to avail yourself of around town, perishable and otherwise. Uh, a world without energy and a world without petroleum energy, frankly, is not a world that I can. Nobody wants to live in that world. And yet, no. this is what we spend a great lot of time talking about, <laughs> and it just seems like such foolishness to me. It, it, yeah, it is. It is. Well, we'll let you go. I know they were serving the burgers back there behind us, and so we'll let you go grab a grab a lunch. Thank you again for coming on. We won't have you on next week. We we're not doing this next week. Well, <laughs> okay, then. we'll give you next week off. First week of May, you get off, but we'll be. But no, thank you well, for coming I'm, on again. I'm so glad you guys are here. Thanks for coming, and great to see you. And let's all go have a burger. All right, thanks, sir. Right. So we're back down here again for the Baffin Bay Beatdown Part Two, right? <laughs> right. right. Uh, 
Yeah, I just you know, beautiful weather here. Gorgeous. Had a great dinner. The real question on my mind is, do you think Josh will catch a fish tomorrow? Mm, yes. Oh, come on now. Mm, Probably so. Probably so. Probably so. Sure. You know, I know every, I will. Every once in a while, a blind hog finds an ecran. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So we're down here again, though, in all seriousness, and it's a beautiful weather down here. God, it's just, uh, what, uh, what is it, 65, 70 degrees right now? I don't know. It feels fantastic. We're talking about just how remote this place is and how quiet it is and just how it has just that great, if you want to be, you know, you hear about fishing in the backwoods. Well, this is kind of fishing in the back part of the ocean, if you will. You're back here by yourself. Um, you were saying how little the pressure is back here and probably gives you guys a little bit of a strategic advantage to uh, putting out good guided trips. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's, uh, it's it's a pretty good haul to make it to the back of the bay here from the Corpus area, which is the next closest uh, boat ramp. <clears throat> and uh, fortunately for us, we've been catching our fish back here in the back. So like I said we definitely have a strategic advantage. But then uh, it, it's not a secret. And even though even though it's not a secret and we we see more people back here than we have all year, it's still it's still not that crowded. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you might see maybe five, six boats on any old given day. But everybody's doing the same thing, looking for a really big fish. Speaking of big fish, so last time we were here, it was a little bit cold. Uh, it had been warm that week, but I think a cold front moved in. Uh, now we're in middle of April. What's the difference fishing from last month in March to April? What are some of the things that you guys are seeing? Maybe some of the things the, fishing or, uh, the fish are doing differently or um, different spots you need to look at. How do you evaluate that when it warms up a little bit? Well, I think that, you know, now we're uh, – Unfortunately, I think one of the things that's been kind of frustrating for us has been we've had some kind of March weather in mm -hmm. April, which has been kind of interesting. But uh, so cold weather kind of coming in at the late part of the season and the fish really want to spawn. And spawn happens when the water temperature is about 80 degrees and stays there. But now we've had some kind of fronts coming through water temperature going down from like 75 to 65 back up to 70 back down to 60 and so the fish are kind of confused a little bit so i think two things one good one bad the bad is we're still waiting for the spawn mm -hmm. the good the spawn's still coming so we have maybe until the middle or end of may until that happens so if you're still interested in catching the biggest fish of your lifetime, this is still the great time to come. We've seen a few fish that have uh, that definitely look like they've spawned, but not, you know, still not the majority of the fish. So mm -hmm. I think we're still looking at still things look pretty good right now. Everything's uh, everything's still in front of us instead of all behind us. And we have caught some big fish in the last uh, two or three weeks here too. So uh, we've caught. I think we've had a 31 that I know of, and then at least two that were 30. And Sally caught a big fish the other day. I caught a big fish, um, about 29 and a half. So, yeah, there, there are big fish being caught right now. Josh, I'm a little concerned. They're talking about big fish, and they gave you that Mickey Mouse pole last time. Do you think that you can land a big fish on that Mickey Mouse pole? Well, you know, last time, Ryan, it was a little cold, and uh, I was trying to give you a little, little opportunity to get out in front. But... Uh, you know, I'm excited. You know, I was expecting that this 
month to have great weather and opportunity to catch some, you know, some, some good sized fish. So he, he probably needs a Mickey Mouse pole again this well, month, though, huh? Here's what we probably did. because uh, <laughs> it's, you know, I, I don't want to start him out with something really expensive because he might <laughs> drop it overboard. But, but no, it's a, uh, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm not sure if y'all sacrificed a couple of virgins before y'all showed up, but the weather looks like it's gonna be fantastic tomorrow. Yeah, we're excited. Josh did three or four, okay. I think. Don't when the FBI comes tomorrow looking for us, we, we'll be long gone, hopefully. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, they, they talk about spawn. So we come up from Louisiana and Texas, where you can you know you can identify the bass spawn. You can see the fins sticking out the water. Right. Out here where we were at in the bay last time, it was about belly button to waist deep most of the time. How do you identify the spawn here? How do you know where they're spawning at? How can you find those big fish? Because obviously, same thing with bass fishing. You want to catch them pre-spawn, they're big and fat. So how do you about find them in the water like this? Well, uh, a lot of it is from the experience from the times that we fished in this area. And also fish that are spawning tend to get shallow in, uh, I'll say, knee deep to maybe hip deep. Oh, come on. Tell them uh, exactly what you mean. No, I'm not going to say it. But <laughs> I think this crowd can handle it. But anyway, the... Tell them. No, I'm not going to do it. So you do it. So anyway, Wall we're looking... People well, I, yeah. I have no Except nuts. Her, but... I have coconuts. So knee deep to coconut deep. <laughs> so we like... Most of the most of the good fish are up... Most good trout are up shallow. And we know that they like to... Sh they spawn in shallow water, grass flats, in the rocks and stuff like that. So those are the areas that we're kind of targeting right now, looking for. And that's the good thing about wade fishing, as opposed to drifting or anchoring, is is you can cover an area much more thoroughly by jumping out of the boat and uh, you know fan casting an area and working it over real good. So you we go to a place that we're confident that has big fish. We're going there during a time period that we feel increases our odds a little bit, meaning we kind of go by the solar charts and we like early mornings and we'll hit our best spots early. And then, uh, you know, just work them over real good with a lot of confidence. And we've been fortunate enough that it's paid off for us quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully I'll... Uh, I'll Regain my reputation and uh, oh. put Ryan to shame tomorrow. Rega that regain his reputation means you don't catch fish, right? <laughs> well, I was about three different things, you know, smart ass comments went through my head, but I decided I was going to leave him alone. So you have to have a reputation yeah. first, right? <laughs> He's got one. Just kidding you. Was it a good one or a bad? No, I mean, depends on yeah. being a Just guy. Just got one. Huh? Yeah. You know, I, I, real quick, Skip, just real quick, let's resolve this on the podcast. We've debated this intensely. He claims he caught two fish last time. I'm thinking he caught one. Can you do you have a recollection of if he caught any fish? To be honest with you, or can you put a number on it for us? Yeah, Captain Sally's thinking she don't remember anything. No, no. Yeah, no, no fish is what they're going with. <laughs> they're going with no fish. <laughs> I like that. Now, the, you know, there's money involved. <laughs> don't talk about that hundred dollar bill. Let's right. let's leave that up for later. Right. So you said the the trout are getting ready to spawn. Redfish, obviously, we went after some last time, and flounder. Um, it, it, what are the differences as far as spawning those go? Different times of the year, or is it pretty much the same, or is it just um, how, how does that work out? Well, I know Sally literally wrote a, a, a an article on on the flounder, so uh, I know she knows a lot more about the flounder, the physiology of the flounder than I do. Um, so I couldn't tell you much about that. Redfish, we have a resident population of redfish, which you know it's. Uh, 
because we are a landlocked hypersaline lagoon, there's no uh, passes to the Gulf of Mexico, which is where most of the bull reds go to spawn. They'll go and they'll spawn offshore and then the fry come back in and then they'll repopulate the bays. Down here, the, the big bulls never leave. They stay mm -hmm. in the bay. We catch them year round. So, and, and the funny thing is, you know, we'll see them in super, super shallow water where there's not even enough to cover their backs or we'll catch them out in the middle of the bay. And there's no particular area that seems to hold more than, than any other place. So it's kind of, we can run into them just damn near anywhere, mm -hmm. which is, can make for an exciting day once you hook one up and spend 30 minutes trying to wrestle them in. Mm -hmm. And the thing about those fish like that is uh, Dr. David McKee from uh, Texas A&M Corpus Christi, uh, we talked to him about them. He's kind of like the top guy for fish down here. And he told us that those, those 45 to 55 inch redfish that we're catching down here are between 50 and 60 years old. Wow. So I figure any fish that's lived as long as I have, I'll, after I catch them, take a picture with them, I'm just going to turn them loose. Put them back. I think know. they've earned that. Right, right. So we got a couple things we want to talk about. I know since we've been here last time, first off, the suite that we're in, thank you guys very much, is super nice. Y'all got that. I know there was something last time, carpet or something, y'all getting done, and looks really good. Also, y'all have been, uh, well, I don't want to say more popular venues than this because this is about the, the cream of the crop, but y'all have taken some other venues that y'all been on that are a little bit more fishing-related. Um, what what y'all been doing as far as TV appearances go? We've been really, really cool Um have, having some awesome experiences lately. So we, we've been doing uh, one TV show called The Hook mm -hmm. and another TV show called <laughs> Hook Spit, right? No, Hook Set. Hook Set. Anyway, those two guys. Um, if they're uh, listening to this, they're pissed, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they're very <laughs> Couldn't remember this right now, right? But... We have been really enjoying um, having some excellent um, uh, TV show experiences with some guys that we haven't really had a chance to talk to much. Um, in our they're they're associated with uh, Field and Stream magazine and uh, Outdoor, Outdoor Life, Life right, magazine. Right, right. So you know, they're it's not just you know not just a fly by night deal. Right. They're actually. Uh, you know, actually pretty well-known names, especially in the outdoor industry. And then we were really fortunate to have, uh, as one of the guests along, uh, Robert Earl Keene got mm -hmm. to come down and stay with us here at the lodge. And that was uh, quite interesting. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we, a lot of Robert Earl Keene music being played around here before, during, and <laughs> after. So so if you, if you hear us and we're singing the armadillo or the road goes on forever and the party mm -hmm. never ends, well, mm -hmm. you'll know why. You know, Josh, we talked last time about it's a great spot to bring clients or friends or family, but obviously this is the oil and gas show, so clients and taking care of clients is a good thing. We were commenting after dinner night just how good the food is here, the soup that they had. Fantastic. I don't know what kind of soup it was, but it was fantastic. It's really a resort. We said last time it's really meets the standards of kind of a first-rate institution, and you guys are, are keeping that, 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 that trend up. It's you know, A lot of work goes into this, so it's not just come down and fish. It's really a full-service entertainment type uh, day or weekend or however long you're down here. Right. We're we're very proud of our staff here, our, our uh, chef, our executive chef, Ray, and uh, Dakota, who is his sous chef, 
Like I said, uh, we were really fortunate tonight that y'all got to experience uh, the clients that we had that fished today donated mm -hmm. some of their fish, mm -hmm. and that's what we had for dinner mm -hmm. tonight. And uh, Ray did a fantastic job on it. And, of course, all the sides and everything was really, really, you know, I, I think first class. Mm -hmm. So hey, since he's been he's been here about a year, and I think I've gained about 15 pounds. <laughs> and I'm trying like hell to diet right now, but it's just not working. And uh, he, he just brought his daughter on. We have her as our breakfast chef, and she makes all of the cakes and stuff, oh, wow. y'all. So yeah. I, I know y'all had some of that chocolate mm -hmm. cake tonight. Mm -hmm. That was good. Well, she makes a... She makes a tres leches cake that is like, you know, I'm sure it's in heaven. I know it's in heaven. <laughs> I sure hope I make it there so I can have some. But man, I'm telling you, it's it's some of the some of the most awesome food and uh, and like I said, having everybody around the, our table in the afternoon after fishing, after a good day of fishing, a couple of cold beers and some good food and some good visiting, it just doesn't get much better than that. All right, Josh, so let's recap the rules and the caps here. He can weigh in to make sure it's fair. What are the official rules that we agreed upon for tomorrow before we go fishing? Well, we were in Dallas uh, the day before yesterday, yesterday, Ryan, and somebody said it was first fish, most fish, and biggest, biggest fish. fish. That we, had a pot, we had a listener that was, that was yeah, telling right. us that. So first, first fish, fish, most, most fish, fish, biggest, biggest fish. fish. So we're going to score those all three equal? No, it's going to be three separate bets. No, 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 no. So, like, so... Is it one point to win a category is what you're saying? So if you win the first category and the last category, you get two points, and you win the middle category at one point? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there's no – there's no. Well, uh, I, I would say – Has the most – is the most fish keepers or – Yeah, that's a good question, Skip. Or yeah, is it going to be just question. anything? I would say keepers. You didn't – then you wouldn't have uh, Now be confident now. <laughs> show, show your confidence level. Most fish, yeah, because Ryan didn't really catch any – he was catching minnows. Uh, he was catching some minnows yesterday yeah. or yeah. last time yeah. we were here, yeah. so – yeah, the yeah. skip doesn't even remember you catching a fish. That's how that's how big you would call it. So we think skip. We, how should we? You the the fishing guru here. How should we do this? Oh, I think you should be keeper fish. So most so first fish is worth a point, right? And that can be anything. Anything. Yeah. Anything. Keeper just, just, or no keeper or non keeper, just first fish. And then the most fish keepers. is worth a, most ke most keepers. I'm sorry, the most keepers. Most so the keepers. first fish could not be a keeper, but it's still the first fish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So whatever you catch the first fish, it's got to be alive. No 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 moss or nothing like that, Josh. You know, we got to keep on the up and up here. So the first live thing you catch right. is worth a point. The most keepers is worth a point. Now the question is, is is the biggest fish worth one point? What do you think, Skip? How about if it's over 30? 30 inches is the big if it's an let's, let's say if it's an oversized fish. So if it's over 25-inch trout or if it's over a 28-inch red. All right. So if it's so if it's a twenty-two incher, it's worth one point. But if it's over that, it's worth two points. Right. All there right. Go. All right. I'm with it. I like it. All right, Skip. Before we get out of here, I know you probably got some sponsors, Yeti, and some other folks you might want to throw out there and thank uh, before sure. that you guys get off here. Yep, Yeti, and you know, like I said, we're the we were the very first official Yeti Lodge in Texas, so we're proud of that. I think there's a couple more now, but we were the first, so uh, we get one point for that, right? That's right. Okay. So we're the first, and then uh, we are now proud sponsors of uh, 13 Fishing. Uh, you'll, you'll notice all of our fishing gear tomorrow is 13 mm -hmm. Fishing. Really fantastic reels, Good and stuff, we yeah. got some of the really some of the really nice rods. Sarge, Sally and I throw Sarge Custom Rods. That's uh, our go-to rods. We've been with them for a long time, and uh, Saltwater Assassin, of course, uh, Forever Last. Mm -hmm. Everybody does. Everybody deals with Forever Last. Fantastic wading gear. And uh, I'm sure I'm leaving they somebody even got, out. They even got the big boy size for a fellow like me. Because yeah, last time I was kind of, I had them uh, 
them Cabela's ones, and they was they was a little snug. So yep. Skip saved me with some big ones there. And we're we're most proud of our Orvis endorsement down here. We're Orvis endorsed for fly fishing and wing shooting. And uh, like I said, we're very very proud of of being that. In fact, Sally and I are going to. Uh, we're going to Missoula, Montana later on this month uh, to go uh, talk to all the folks up there at Orvis, and uh, it's going to be fun. Okay. Well, we won't be talking to you guys on the podcast again until next month, which is, I think, May 24th and 25th, the next time we're down here. But Josh and I will be recapping the trip on Monday show when we're up at, uh, right. we'll be up in Wichita Falls recording Monday. Um, and so we'll have a full, I, I'm saying this after, we're going to have the full recap, but they're going to hear it before they hear this. So, yep. um, Josh, what's your prediction? Let's go ahead and hear it. You, 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 can you call your own shot? That's the question. All right, so I, I'm claiming uh, biggest fish and most keepers. I think I think uh, you may catch the first fish, a little minner. But uh, <laughs> all right, so Josh, yeah, I like call, the way he thinks, man. Josh calling two to one. Okay, I'm <laughs> I'm calling a shutout, three nil, and I'm catching a thirty incher. You got it here on the recording, unless of course I don't. Nate, cut that out. Awesome. Thank you again for sponsoring the show. Uh, for the listeners, be sure to check out baffinbayrodandgun.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. Be sure to check them out on Hook TV. Their Instagram, they post outstanding pics, which I've been sending to the folks who are coming on. And jo- and Josh, uh, <laughs> send the pictures of the fish you guys have been catching down here because it's been just, it's always good to watch and see what, what, what to expect. You know, that's part of the thing is just getting the mindset right. right. So uh, thank you guys again for watching the show. And for the listeners, be sure to check them out and be sure to tell them we sent you. And until next time, keep climbing. <laughs>